العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنتي لا يوم الدين All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day The topic which I've been asked to present this evening is that of the duties of a Muslim husband towards his wife. Now the duties of a Muslim husband may be divided into two main areas consistent with the general realities of human constitution, that of being spiritual and also of being material. Man is essentially a spiritual being clothed in a material body and and existing in a material world. However, in this life he is primarily enjoined by his creator to make the spiritual act of submission of his body and soul to the divine requirements, or in simple terms, to worship God alone. This requirement is fundamentally a spiritual one because the outward submission of the body parts without an inward spiritual acceptance of the divine will quickly decays into a set of meaningless rituals totally unacceptable to God and completely ineffective in affecting man's spiritual growth for which they were designed. Of course an exception has to be made here in the case of children you know, who may be taught the rituals of worship, that is formal prayer, fasting, pilgrimage, etc., if they're in the vicinity of Mecca, and they're taught this from an early age, from the age of seven, and this is in order for these uh, practices, religious practices, to become natural for them, with the intent that at a later point in time, they would come to understand the purpose of these various acts of worship, you know, once they reach the age of what we call the age of reason, then they would be taught what are the goals, the spiritual goals behind them, so that the acts that they would be doing would then take on its full uh, meaning and be a force of change and guidance in the life of the human being. Now when considering the duties of a Muslim husband, it is then necessary to begin with the most important aspect of a human being's life, his spiritual guidance. So the first duty of a Muslim husband is to provide spiritual guidance for his wife. Marriage was ordained in Islam as a vehicle to help human beings submit their wills to Allah. All aspects of life when done in accordance with divine guidance become acts of worship worship essentially being doing what pleases God and avoiding what displeases Him marriage in an Islamic concept or in Islamic context may then be considered a rite of worship enabling man to effectively submit his will to the Creator consequently the last prophet of God was reported to have said when a servant of Allah marries, he has completed half of his religion or half of his religious obligations and he must then fear Allah in order to complete the second half. This hadith 
is authentic, found in Mishkat al-Masabih. A working Islamic marriage tames one of the most powerful drives in man and provides him with psychological and emotional support to handle the difficulties of this material world. As the leader of the family, men are then responsible to set the tone of the relationship. For it to be successful, it must be religious, that is successful from an Islamic point of view. And it is ultimately the husband who will determine the course of the relationship. It is thus the right of the wife to receive spiritual direction from her husband in order for the marriage to function as a religious institution facilitating the worship of God. And it is primarily the infusion of spiritual guidance into the male-female relationship which transforms marriage from an animal act of cohabitation into a spiritual act of submission to the divine will. The principle of spiritual guidance may also necessitate the assertion of authority on the part of the husband. Where the bounds of Islam are being crossed, he must restrain his family from crossing them. For example, it is his duty to stop his wife from leaving the house improperly dressed. Likewise, he is required to prevent her from leaving the home wearing perfume if she will be in the presence of men unrelated to her. And of course, this is based on a narration by Abu Musa in which he quoted the Prophet Muhammad as saying, Every eyeing is adulterous. And when a woman perfumes herself and passes the company of men, she is an adulteress. What we're saying here is that it is the duty of the man to stop his wife from leaving the home in a fashion which would be contravening the rules of Islam. And this is the duty that he has towards his wife to ensure that she maintain the correct Islamic uh, dress, mode of dress, and the way she carries herself should be according to Islamic principles in order to protect herself not just externally but internally. It is also his duty to prevent her from watching movies and videos which contain haram, haram acts or scenes and from reading books and magazines whose contents are prohibited Islamically. And of course, one of the best ways of preventing is to himself be an example. So, he could not be preventing her if he himself is watching these things. I mean, he just has to keep these things out of his home in general. He himself should not indulge in it, nor should he allow his wife to indulge in it. And in this way, he is fulfilling the duty of providing spiritual guidance in the home, providing spiritual guidance to his wife, which is his primary duty. The second uh, principle, which may be looked at as being an aspect of this guidance, is that of education. Because guidance is required not only in the basic pillars of Islam, but also in the various contacts that the family has with the community within which it exists. The beginning point for guidance is education. 
Thus, it is the duty of the Muslim husband to be religiously educated himself and to see that his wife also receive a good religious education. Accordingly, the Prophet was reported to have said that seeking knowledge is compulsory in every Muslim. This prophetic statement and many others emphasize the critical importance of education to every member of the Muslim community. The implementation of this principle in the home may take a variety of forms which are too many to list. For example, the husband should teach what he knows, and the more he knows, the more he has to teach. Islamic books, tapes, magazines, etc. should be purchased or borrowed in order to develop an Islamic environment in the home. The wife should also be encouraged to attend women's Islamic circles or Islamic courses if available, and the family, well that's if it's available and the family circumstances permit. <coughs> The end result should be that the wife become well informed about who God is and what her, or in what her duty to God lies. The Muslim husband's spiritual responsibilities to his wife have to be discharged within an appropriate atmosphere for them to be successfully fulfilled. Spiritual growth cannot be forced or dictated. Harsh methods would only discourage or make the uninterested wife more adamant in her rejection of guidance or advice. Allah referred to this reality in his communication with the Prophet Muhammad as follows. It is a part of Allah's mercy that you deal gently with them. For if you were severe or harsh-hearted, they would have fled from around you. So overlook their faults and ask forgiveness for them and consult them in the affairs of the moment. This is in the third surah, verse 159. Thus guidance and education of wives can only be encouraged, supported and nurtured through gentle methods. Such methods cannot be confined only to specific occasions, but must be the general rule in the Muslim husband's treatment of his wife. So from there we then go into the duties that are related to the more material aspects of the relationship. The first of those duties, which could be the third in this series, is that of kindness. The overall character of the Muslim husband's relationship to his wife in the material sphere is one of kindness. Allah says in Surah Nisa, verse 19, O believers, you are forbidden to inherit women against their will. And this is in reference to a practice in the period of ignorance or jahiliyyah when it was the custom of stepsons or brothers to take possession of a dead man's widow along with his wealth so Allah prohibits that here in this verse nor should you treat them harshly in order to take back a part of the dowry which you gave them and this is also again in reference to certain pre-Islamic practices except where they have been guilty of open lewdness Instead, you should live with them in kindness and equity. And the term used here, which has been translated as kindness and equity, is ma'roof. And if you dislike them, perhaps you dislike something in which Allah has placed much good. This is Surah Nisa, verse 19. The term used in this Quranic verse to describe the way in which husbands should treat their wives is ma'roof, which literally means known. It refers to good humanitarian practices which are well known in all societies by the way of 
divinely inspired instinct. Surah Shams, verses 7 and 8, by the soul and, and the proportion given to it, inspiring it to know right from wrong. So, when Allah speaks about living and treating wives with what is known as ma'roof, it is, Allah is referring here to the things which are known in all societies by nature, by human instinct, which Allah has put in each and every individual to know what is good and what is not good. So Allah doesn't have to go into the details of explaining exactly how He should treat it. He just uses the term ma'roof, that which is known. Allah uses the same term in His description of the basis for the superiority of the Muslim nation above all other nations. Allah says, You are the best of nations selected for mankind because you enjoin the good, which is the ma'roof, and forbid the evil, referred to as munkar, and you believe in Allah. So, this is the basis which makes Islam and the Muslim nation superior to all other nations. And this is the basis of a correct Islamic relationship, marital relationship, wherein the husband enjoins that ma'roof. He enjoins the ma'roof that his wife should be doing, and he enjoins ma'roof on himself in his treatment of the wife. Thus the proper treatment of wives is something essentially obvious, not really requiring a detailed explanation. However, because male-dominated society which had strayed far from the divine path, had developed so many deeply entrenched oppressive customs in, in its treatment of women, Allah directly addressed in the Qur'an the most common and recurring examples. And He further attacked them indirectly by way of the prophetic example. Consequently, there are many authentically reported statements of the Prophet Muhammad in which he enjoined the males to be equitable in their treatment of women in their care. For example, Aisha quoted the Messenger of Allah as saying, The best of you is the one who is best to his family, and I am the best of you to his family. The companions were always striving to outdo each other as Allah had commanded in the Quran, for each is a goal to which he turns. So seek to outdo each other in righteousness. Surah Al-Baqarah verse 148. And in Surah Ma'idah verse 48. Had Allah willed, He could have made you a single nation. But He has not done so in order to test you in what He has given you. So seek to outdo each other in righteousness. Therefore, when the Prophet Muhammad informed his companions of a means to be the best, to outdo the rest, they would naturally try their utmost to implement that way. Furthermore, the Prophet Muhammad who was the best example of Islamic con uh, conduct, informed them that the way in which he treated his family was the ideal way for which they should strive. He also linked kind treatment of wives to the highest levels of faith by saying, the most perfect of the believers in faith is the best of them in character and the best of you in character is he who is best to his family and of course when the term family is used here it refers to the family in general and it refers 
to the wife in specific. Such statements cannot but create in the believing husband an acute awareness of the importance of displaying kindness when dealing with his wife. And when we shift over to the economic sphere, into the area of spending, which is part of that material side of the relationship, where kindness has also to be displayed, we find Allah addressing the economic issues saying, Lodge them where you are lodging, according to your means, and do not harm them to make life difficult for them. Let the man of plenty spend out of his plenty. As for him whose provision is limited, let him spend out of what Allah has given him. The Surah Talaq, verse 6 and 7. You know, herein Allah has enjoined men to maintain their women according to a reasonable standard. The Prophet Muhammad further elaborated on this divine command by specifically stating on a number of occasions that it was the woman's right to be clothed and fed according to the man's means. During the farewell pilgrimage, he was reported by Abu Huraira to have said, You have got rights over women whereby they are not allowed to let anyone enter your home whom you dislike. If they disobey you, you may hit them. And the woman's right on you is that you should clothe her and feed her justly. And the term used here again for justly is ma'roof. In another hadith reported by Muawiyah and Qushayri, he quoted the Prophet ﷺ as saying, you know, that is when the Prophet ﷺ was asked about the rights of women regarding men, he said that you feed her when you get food to eat and you clothe her when you get clothing. He even gave permission for women to take from their stingy husbands their own needs. Aisha reported that Hind ibn Utba asked, O Messenger of Allah, Abu Sufyan is a miser. He does not give me enough for my children and myself unless I take it from him without his knowledge. The Prophet Muhammad replied, Take what is reasonable. The same term ma'roof is used again here. For you, and your children's needs. This is in Sahih Bukhari. So, we find that the Sunnah, or the way of the Prophet ﷺ, has tackled some of the basic issues concerning the economic needs within the family and emphasized the importance of men fulfilling those needs for their women. But in order to further encourage men to look after economic, the economic needs of their women, he pointed out that spending of one's money on one's wife was the best way in which money could be spent. Sauban reported that Allah's Messenger said, The best dinar a man spends is the one spent on his family. And furthermore, if a man spends on his family for the pleasure of Allah, it becomes an act of worship. Abu Mas'ud related that he heard the Prophet Muhammad say, Whenever a Muslim spends something for his family, anticipating his reward in the hereafter, it is recorded for him as an act of charity. These recommendations provide part of the necessary reinforcements for the principal role of the male as provider, protector, and maintainer of females, which has been clearly stated by Allah in the Quran. Surah Nisa, verse 34, Men are the protectors and maintainers of women, because Allah has given one more strength than the other and because they support them from their means.
The next principle, which is the fifth in the series of principles, uh, which identify the duties of the husband to the wife, is that of gentleness. Due to the differences in the psychological makeup of men and women, wherein women tend to be more emotionally high-strung and deeply sensitive, advice has been given to them to be particularly gentle in their admonition of women. The Prophet Muhammad said, Whoever believes in Allah and the last day should not hurt his neighbor and should admonish women in a good way, for they have been created from a rib, and the most crooked part of a rib is its upper part. If you try to force it straight, it will break, and if you leave it alone, it will remain crooked. So give advice to women accordingly. On another occasion he said, Certainly women are created from a rib which will never become straight on a path for you ever. For you to enjoy her, you will have to do so while she is crooked. And if you try to straighten her, you will break her. And breaking her is her divorce. Thus, although the reins of authority within the family and in society in general have been placed firmly in the man's hands by the text of the Quran for example in Surah Al-Baqarah verse 228 and women have rights corresponding to the obligations on them according to what is equitable but men have a degree over them men have been called to exercise their authority in a gentle manner befitting the sensitive and delicate nature of women for the primary goal of marriage is tranquility what Allah refers to in the Quran as second for the soul within the ever-changing flow of hardships and struggles which constitutes human life and of course this is in reference to the fact that Allah said we most certainly have created man in a life of toil and struggle this is Surah Al-Balad verse 4 and in Al-Inshiqaq verse 6 he said O mankind surely you continue to toil towards your Lord then you will meet him so human beings are caught up in this ever-changing flow of hardships and struggles in life and marriage is there to provide some tranquility for the soul in the midst of these trials. It is a blessing which God has given man to reflect on and lead him to submit his will to that of the divine. And among his signs, this is in Surah Rum, verse 21, and among his signs is this, that he created from you or for you mates from among yourselves that you might live with them in tranquility and he has put love and mercy between your hearts surely in these are signs for those who reflect so a man is then obliged to admonish his wife in a fashion which befits her state of of uh, we said being emotionally very sensitive and a state which he has the Prophet Muhammad has, has uh, made an example or, or compared with the rib and the terms used or as translated as being crooked not, this is not meaning in the English 
context we might look at crooked as meaning somebody who is you know twisted or deviant it's not in this sense but having an emotional nature which is unchangeable something which no matter what you do it is not going to change I mean the example we have from the lives of the wives of the Prophet Muhammad when we think of the wives of the Prophet Muhammad they refer to as the mothers of the believers you know Ummahat al-Mu'mineen however we, when we read into the stories of their lives we find jealousies there though they are the, the examples you know in terms of righteousness and charity and all the different good things at the same time we see certain qualities qualities of jealousy which cause them to do certain you know pranks amongst each other you know which seem quite funny when we read about it but what it's showing us is that no matter what stage a woman reaches in general it's a general situation for women I mean there are certain qualities like that of jealousy etc which are not going to go they're not going to change so it's going to cause her to act in certain particular ways so it is required of a man it is his duty to recognize this reality and accept this reality but guide it correctly and in the hadith which was mentioned earlier we find something some reference there to beating and this is very important this is you know it is uh, the right has been given to a man to beat his wife however it is the right of the wife that that beating be light and this is very important because the issue of you know abuse in, in, in relationships is one which is quite rampant and, and quite you know uh, destructive to the family structure uh, affecting psychologically the the, uh, the makeup of both the wife and the children as well as the, the man himself who is involved in such acts and uh, it is something which you know is, is uh, very widespread in the West now and it and it does appear in Muslim families also you know where women will be complaining of their wife their husbands you know abusing them physically abusing them the approach of the West is that beating is cancelled it just is not allowed for a man to strike his wife however this is something which has been made permissible in the Quran itself in Surah Nisa verse 34 Allah has given permission for the man to beat his wife but it's very important that we understand what is the context and how it should take place uh, in Surah An-Nisa verse 34 Allah says as to those women on whose part you fear ill conduct admonish them first then refuse to share their beds and lastly beat them I mean this is put in an order it's not if the wife does something that you don't like immediately the first thing you do is you know you, you beat her so it's important to understand that it is, this is like the last resort not a first resort and we should also keep in mind that this beating is not supposed to be a bone crushing jaw breaking pummeling affair you know, designed to inflict the maximum of pain consequently Abdullah ibn Zam'a quoted the Prophet as saying none of you should flog his wife the way a slave was flogged then have sex with her at the end of the day and on another occasion he said you have rights over them that they do not entertain as a guest 
anyone whom you dislike. If they do so, you may hit them in a way which does not cause injury. Nor should the beating include face slaps and curses. As the Prophet ﷺ told a companion who had asked about the rights of women in marriage, it is that you give her food when you eat, clothes her when you clothe yourself, that you do not slap her in the face, curse her, or sleep separate from, from her, except in your own home. So the slapping in the face is prohibited. This is not a means of the allowance for hitting. This is not included. And it should not also include cursing. Actually, slapping in the face is other statements of the Prophet Muhammad where he forbade slapping in the face of any living being, even animals, were not allowed to strike them in the face. You know, so even the practice of hitting children in the face, this is also prohibited in Islam. This allowance, that is the allowance for hitting a woman in a fashion which is which does not cause injury is there for cases where it becomes necessary for some women attempts at persuasion through admonition and a denial of sex may have little or no effect while beating may bring about the desired response however this should not be the norm in a relationship otherwise it would deteriorate into a criminal act of physical abuse the best method of discipline after admonition is that used by the Prophet Muhammad he would simply avoid his wives in bed Aisha reported that he once swore not to sleep with his wives for a whole month the seventh duty relates to hate much of the responsibility of creating a pleasing atmosphere in the home is the duty of the woman due to the fact that she that it is her normal and natural domain while her husband is required to brave the difficulties of the outside world in order to provide for his home the efforts on both parts must be appreciated for there to be an air of tranquility and love in the home consequently the Prophet Muhammad prohibited the husband from developing or expressing feelings of hate for his spouse Abu Hurairah quoted him as saying no believing man should hate a believing woman for if he hates one of her character traits he will be pleased with some other trait this prophetic recommendation contains the general principle of not concentrating on a person's defects because everyone has some defects for contentment to be achieved one must look at the brighter side otherwise one will always be in a state of of discontentment due to unfulfilled desires it is a part of human nature that the grass always looks greener on the other side or as the Prophet put it if a man had a valley of gold he would wish for another and nothing will fill a man's stomach except the dirt of his grave knowing that the Muslim husband has to focus on the good qualities of his wife and thank God for them while remembering the Prophet prophetic saying the whole world is a commodity and the best of the world's commodities is a righteous wife the last principle that I wanted to mention of the duties of the, wife, of the husband to the wife is that of play entertainment is a part of, social, of the social life of human beings outside of the Islamic framework it takes up much of man's energy and where no bounds are set the entertainment industry unleashes a steady barrage of 
corruption consuming hard-earned cash for a few moments of fun. Recognizing the need for entertainment, Islam has permitted only the forms which have a positive effect on the society. Since marriage plays such a major role in human society, it is not surprising to find Islam encouraging the husband to entertain and be entertained by his wife. The Prophet Muhammad said, Everything with which a man plays is unlawful, except shooting with his bow, training his horse, and playing with his wife. Surely these pastimes are correct. And Aisha reported that she had a foot race with the Messenger of Allah while they were on a journey and she beat him. However, when she later gained weight, she raised him and he beat her and said, this one is for the other. So it is important for the husband also in his relationship, it's his duty, to be friendly and playful with his wife to provide an atmosphere of entertainment within the home. Otherwise, people will seek uh, fun or entertainment through means which are not acceptable Islamically. Now, the duties of a Muslim husband, you know, are much more than what I have mentioned. However, I just wanted to touch on these because these are ones which are usually not spoken about, especially those concerning guidance and education. The tendency is to speak more about the physical aspects in terms of providing economics, etc. However, we have to keep in mind that since a human being is primarily a spiritual being and the purpose of this life is for us to develop the higher spiritual qualities to become the kind of spiritual beings which Allah uh, had designed us to be, it means then that the, the most important duty within a Muslim marriage is to provide guidance for the wife. And I'm going to stop here and uh, entertain any questions that the sisters may have uh, concerning the duties of a Muslim husband. And I'm sure you have many that you would like to ask about. Some papers have been distributed, so uh, if these can be questions can be written on them and submitted then inshallah we can try to answer whatever questions uh, have been raised uh, the first question is what are the husband's and wife's responsibility to the parents of the wife who are non-Muslims and have difficulty in accepting their daughter as a Muslim. It is their duty to continue to try to deal with them in a kind and helpful manner that they should use this as a means of conveying Islam to them in practice because we should never give up on people until they're dead once they're dead then of course our bond is broken if the parents have died as non-Muslims we are not allowed to 
pray for them so whilst they're living then we have the duty of trying to convey Islam to them if they don't want to accept that the daughter has accepted Islam of course this does make the situation a bit uncomfortable but usually with the coming of children you know this starts to change their attitude somewhat uh, and if people continue to to deal with them kindly eventually you know it's quite possible that it will cause a change you know Allah says you know in the Quran that if one you know repels evil with good that is their their evil reactions or their negative reactions if this is repelled with good then you will find that the one who was your worst of energy enemies would become one of your closest friends and there are many examples you know that we have seen in America in the West in general you know where parents you know have been opposed for long periods of time and then eventually they became Muslims and became very strong supporters of the, the family so we always as Muslims we try to keep the best outlook we think towards the best we recognize this possibility and so we would continue to strive to to give good when they give negativity and evil or whatever we give good back to them to the degree that we can if it reaches a stage where it's starting now to affect one's Islam you know the daughter is finding that you know it becomes becoming difficult for her to practice Islam because of those parents then they may be obliged to to cut those relationships you know to the degree that it is necessary to protect the Islam of the wife or of the children you know Um, uh, question number two what you are saying about a husband's duties is true however it, it, it only works that way if the husband is practicing his Islam what advice do you give to the woman who is trying to practice her Islam and her husband doesn't What advice would you give someone who knows a family that is falling apart? Okay, this is the second question. It's the same person writing. Okay, um, a woman in that type of a situation has to continue to strive to the degree that she is able to encourage her husband to to practice if she can be around other Muslim women who are practicing and whose husbands may then be encouraged or asked to bring this person into their circle to, to influence because you know much of this has to do with the type of people that the person is involved with a man who hangs around with non-practicing so-called Muslims then is likely to be a similar type of person but when such a person is invited into circles of people who are practicing and, and he moves around with these people, after a period of time this starts to rub off on him and it starts to improve that individual. So I would suggest that you know, such a sister would uh, 
tried to get her husband, you know, involved in the circles of the other practicing, you know, good Muslims, so that some of that, uh, these qualities may start to rub off on the individual and, and um, you know, change his own approach. Of course, if the, the husband's attitudes are actually preventing the woman from practicing her Islam, she's, she's being stopped from practicing her Islam, then such a relationship it is better that she gets out of. You know, if she's able to get out of it, then it is better that she gets out of it. Actually, some of the scholars here, you know, have ruled that a woman who is married, Muslim woman who is married to a husband who doesn't make salah, you know, that uh, this marriage is, becomes invalid. Because if he doesn't make salah, then he has left the bounds of Islam and is prohibited for a Muslim woman to be married to such an individual. Because this is, even, you know, this is worse than even being married to a Christian. This is married to a, a total disbeliever. I mean, of course, this is based on the, on the precept or principle that a person who stops praying or who does not pray is a disbeliever. Some scholars hold that such a person is not a disbeliever, you know, unless he actually opens, openly expresses belief, disbelief. Like, I don't believe that prayer is necessary at all. And a person who's not praying, but he believes he should be praying, is not, would not be considered to be a disbeliever in that full sense which breaks the, bound, the bonds of marriage. He's a disbeliever in practice, what we call kufr amali, as opposed to disbeliever in his heart, we call kufr qalbi. Now, kufr qalbi, the one where the disbelief has actually entered in the heart, it's gone beyond the practice, that is the one which breaks the bonds. You know, this is, so, uh, I would say that, you know, if the woman's husband has not reached that state, of disbelief where the disbelief is not is actually in the heart now, if he does believe but he's just not practicing it she should continue to work with him and try to get other people to work with him but if it's an individual who has actually disbelieved in his heart I mean this person is clear he does not believe in God or whatever you know doesn't believe in Islam then it is actually prohibited Islamically for her to remain married to such an individual the second question what advice would you give to someone who knows a family that is falling apart. They are Muslim and the children are suffering. What should our duties be? Well, our duty should be to try to keep the family together uh, as long as the um, reasons why the breakup is taking place are reasons which are not uh, valid reasons Islamically. You know, if it is a case, as we mentioned, where, you know, one or other has become a non-Muslim, in fact, you know, in the heart, then that breakup is necessary. But where it's a question of misunderstandings, you know, which usually develop in relationships, etc., then we should try to arbitrate, we should try to, you know, intervene and to try to bring them back together. I mean, this is why we know in Islam, the process of divorce is one wherein uh, arbitrators should be brought in if possible. And this is the way the Muslim society would really function, that when people are married, you're marrying uh, two families are coming together as opposed to just two individuals. The problem uh, which arises is when a person, either people, two people from the West marry, where it ends up being two individuals, it's no longer two families. Or a person from a Muslim society marries a person from the West, 
where it is a family but then you're dealing with one individual this is where you know this type of support may not be so readily available where the families should get involved you know, brothers relatives uncles etc you know should try to be involved in trying to stop such a, a breakdown from taking place in such cases especially it becomes the duty of those who are friends of theirs to try to to resolve to help them to resolve the problems to take the sister aside and try to find out try to get to what the root of the problem is and uh, you know her that sister may be who has found out may relate that to her husband who may in turn uh, speak back to the husband who is you know in the position of um, of a family breakup you know and trying to to encourage that person to, to see the realities of the problem or to encourage the person to to sit with some people who may you know listen to the, the issues and offer some kind of solutions for them but in terms of the children of course you know it is our duty to try to to bring the children and try to advise them and, and to help them as much as we can because for children it's usually very difficult for them to comprehend you know, what is going on with adults especially in, in the case of family breakups Uh, next question if a person is convinced that they are bothered or made ill by the evil eye what is the correct method of treatment some say saffron ink used to write the Quran on a paper then soak the paper and drink the water some say a sheikh blowing into water or anyone for that matter and saying Quran and then drinking the water another way is if you think you know where the eye is coming from the evil eye that is you take something from that person such as after they have eaten dates take the pit soak it what is the correct method of treatment some say saffron ink used to write the Quran on a paper then soak the paper and drink the water some say a sheikh blowing into water or anyone for that matter and saying Quran and then drinking the water another way is if you think you know where the eye is coming from the evil eye that is you take something from that person such as after they have eaten dates take the pit soak it in water and then drink it or after they have walked somewhere sweep up some of the dust they have walked with stir it in water let it settle then drink it I want to state I don't agree with these forms of treatment but I don't know where to find out what is right and what is wrong people who are using these methods are convinced totally in their cure now the concept of writing the Quran or Quranic verses in ink from plant sources or whatever something which is not harmful 
then washing and drinking the, the water this is something which has been practiced by early Muslims uh, it is not something which the Prophet Muhammad practiced so some scholars are not in favor of it the recitation of Quran over water this is something which was practiced by the companions of the Prophet and approved by the Prophet himself so this method you know definitely is an acceptable method the last one which is of taking something from the person after they've eaten or collecting the dust that they walked on this sounds the farthest out I mean this I don't think this has any basis at all not from what I, I, I don't have never seen anything in Quran or Hadith which in any way supports this this, this sounds to be really beyond the, the bounds of the norm we have the quls which the Prophet Muhammad which were revealed to him for protection from the effects of evil evil particularly in his case it was in the form of magic however we know in that first of the quls where it says وَمِنْ حَاسِدٍ إِذَا حَسَدٍ it is there where you are seeking refuge in Allah from that form of jealousy or envy you know which is usually referred to in the end as the evil eye so one to me may recite these uh, as the Prophet Muhammad used to do before going to bed he would recite the Qul this Qul Huwallahu Ahad Qul Audhi Rabbil Falaq Qul Audhi Rabbil Nas into his hands then blow in his hands and wipe it over his body this is what he, he would do uh, one may use these suas reciting these suas on different occasions reciting them over water and drinking the water uh, these are acceptable methods of trying to uh, cure oneself of the evil eye but ultimately one has to believe strongly that it is in the hands of Allah that one will be cured through these methods through methods which have been prescribed by the Prophet Muhammad himself which he used himself or which he did himself or which others did his companions so I mean one has to have that that um, that conviction that Allah can cure them from such harm can protect them from such harm and with that conviction inshallah one will be protected but it doesn't mean that one will not be affected because if Prophet Muhammad was affected by magic it means that no matter what you do ultimately I mean you're not it's not possible for you to create an air of perfect perfection of uh, protection around yourself all the time it means that you use the different methods which the Prophet taught you know of reciting you know, Baqarah in your home you know of the, the last verse of Surah Baqarah you know, uh, Ayatul Kursi reciting this after different prayers you know, different du'as which he gave before going into the bathroom seeking refuge in Allah you know, a variety of different occasions when you're coming to your home you know, calling on Allah using Allah's name to, all these different things are, 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 are practices which help to create a kind of a wall of protection around yourself but it is not possible to create one which is perfect it means at times that you, know, you may not and so you may be affected however the, the, the reality is that these are 
means which Allah has provided through His Prophet for us to protect ourselves and we should avail ourselves of it. You know, not just in the time when we feel some problem, this is when we start to use it. But no, this should become a part of our daily norm before we're going into the bathroom, before we're coming into our homes, leaving our homes, putting on our clothes. The various du'as which Prophet gave, this should become a part of our day, daily life. You know, in that way, we can help ourselves, protect ourselves. The uh, next question there is a controversy concerning whether or not it is permissible for a woman to read the Quran during the time of her menses. What is the most widely held, widely held position of the ulama regarding this master, matter? Is reading while wearing gloves allowed? There is no prohibition from the Prophet Muhammad for a woman from reading the Quran in the state of Romances or for a man to read the Quran in any state there is no prohibition Prophet Muhammad did not prohibit all we have is the statement that the Prophet Muhammad used to recite the Quran under all conditions except when he was in a state of Janaba that is after having sexual intercourse when it was necessary for him to take a bath this is the basis this is the, the foundation under which, from which all of these different opinions are derived so some scholars made a comparison between the state of Janaba with that of Menses but of course they are not the same because the state of Janaba you can remove by merely washing yourself taking a bath your state is over you can now read the Quran I mean whereas in the state of menses a woman cannot just wash herself and go and read she is still in that state of menses so the issue of reading the Quran it is most authentic that she is allowed to read the Quran it is preferable in the case of Janabah particularly for the males that they don't since this was the normal practice of the Prophet However, it is allowable if a man, even in the state of Janaba, felt a desire to read some verse of the Quran. This is allowable. We say it is not preferable. There is more reward in following the way of the Prophet Muhammad even though it was not commanded. So, the most authentic position, really, concerning recitation in the time of menses is that it is permissible but perhaps not recommendable in terms of reading because what we're talking about here is reading the Quran where one is touching the Quran with one's hands reciting the Quran which I was really referring to reciting the Quran in a state of uh, I mean from one's memory this is the area where it, I don't think there really is evidence to prohibit it at all however in the case of touching the Quran now you come to the issue of uh, touching the Quran when not being in a state of tahara and we know that the, the general uh, hadith do indicate that this is not permissible some scholars have 
made allowances in case of for educational means what you will find in some schools that the women may have a stick with a you know with rubber at the end or whatever a little pointer which can turn the pages without her directly touching it but she's still reading the Quran so in that case if a stick is allowed in other words that you're not directly touching the Quran then it would appear that gloves would also be allowed to do this but if we are dealing assuming this person was asking the question is a person of an English background English speaking background if we're dealing now with a translation of the Quran translation of the meanings of the Quran then all this is of no importance at all because translations of the Quran are not considered to be Quran so so no matter what state you're in you can read it you can pick it up you can read it you can touch it there's no problem at all because uh, the Quran that we have even if there is the Arabic text there too it is still not considered Quran the general, the general position which is held in determining what is considered Quran and what is not is that whenever the words of other than Allah in a given text is more than the words of Allah that text is no longer considered Quran because Quran refers to a single verse if we take a verse of Quran by itself this is called the Quran also but if there comes along with this verse uh, other words you know you've given an explanation of it which is more than what constitutes the verse then this is no longer considered Quran this is why this is deduced from the fact that the Prophet Muhammad sent uh, messages to the kings of Byzantium and Persia etc which had verses of Quran in it and he knew full well that these people were going to be in the state of Janab with their kafirs and they will probably tear it up, maybe step on it or whatever. So, we know that it is permissible. Once the words of Allah are drowned out by the words of other than Allah, which is the case of the translations of the Quran. In such cases, these are not considered to be Quran, and as such, it's perfectly allowable for a woman to read it under any state, and a man also. Uh, the next question where may I, may I find the hadith which uh, refuses or which does not which prohibits the slapping on a woman's face of children and animals well actually in uh, preparing the um, for this talk I did not dig up the ones which have to do with animals but the one uh, which is the general one you should not strike you know even an animal in the face but the one concerning hitting a woman in the face uh, this can be found in Abu Dawood and Ibn Majah in the book called Al-Hadith volume 1 page 211 and 212 hadith number 63 it's reported by Muawiyah, or Hakim ibn Muawiyah. The other hadith, um, if the person really wants it, I have it at home. I just didn't get a chance to uh, add it to my footnotes. Uh, if they really want, they can, you know, contact uh, me through uh, their husbands or whatever, and I can send the hadith for them afterwards. Inshallah.
is a question is the use of Ali Quran a text or Quran of course that's what I just explained already this is uh, not considered to be Quran <coughs> in and of itself it is a translation of the meaning of the Quran we call it like tafsir a tafsir of the Quran in English Uh, well, there's a question. It says, in reference to the last question, yes, but what is the husband's responsibility to help the wife with her family? I guess this must have been in yeah, relationship to what are the husband's and wife's responsibility to the wives of the parents. Um, it is the duty of the husband to help his wife with her family. I mean, this is. Uh, a part it is that these people have become a part of his family by marriage to her I mean it is uh, not the direct family but is a part of his family now so he has a, uh, an obligation to try to convey Islam to them and to help her to convey Islam to them he shouldn't just say well they're your family that's your business and your problem no he should help her she needs materials she needs tapes or um, you know, if she's going to visit them, if they, she's if he's with her in the states, whatever he's going to to visit them, she's going to visit them. But you know, he should go and try to help to to convey Islam to them because uh, you know, as I said, where where one's treatment of them in a good fashion may bring them around. If the husband is not there trying to show that good side and to treat them in a good fashion, then you know, how can we expect them to come around? How can we expect them? to see the superiority of Islam you know which wherein you know people are treated in the best of manners you know even though they themselves may be acting in you know unacceptable fashions well this was the seems to be the last of the questions so inshallah we will uh, stop here now subhanakallah huh? well okay I guess so some brothers are here would like to ask some questions uh, you're welcome also just come here so it can be heard Uh, recently, I, I ran across an incident where there was a brother who has more than one wife, and uh, he was showing favoritism to one uh, over and above the other one. And uh, the, uh, the question that was related to me was what to do in a situation like that. Should the sister divorce the husband, or, or what? How does she handle a situation like that? what's the best way to, uh, to approach uh, such a situation? Uh, the sister who is being neglected? Yes. Well, I mean, what one would have to do in a situation? I mean, we know that it is the duty of the husband to treat both wives, you know, equally or equitably. And uh, if he does not fulfill this, you know, the Prophet said that he would come on the Day of Judgment with one side of his body, you know, hanging you know that it is a crime and he would be punished for it on the day of judgment 
However, in a marriage, because we don't even have to look at a plural marriage, in the case of a single marriage, if a husband is neglecting his wife, you know, he's married to only one person, but he's neglecting her, he's busy out doing many, many different things, what does she do? Of course, the same, real, same question, really, ultimately. I mean, she should strive to inform him of the neglect and the need for, you know, giving her more time or whatever. And um, if he fails to respond, then she has to look at the relationship herself, you know, and make a, an assessment of the relationship. If she finds that the relationship is a burden for her, life has become uh, unbearable, then it's better for her to get out of that relationship. If she's tried to change it, she's not able to, then the relationship is not producing it is supposed to be, we said, the relationship is supposed to produce tranquility, you know, good feelings, etc. So if these are not there, if she's not benefiting from the relationship in any way, shape or form, then it's better for her to get out of the relationship. But if she adds up the sum total of the relationship, and she finds that, that though she is neglected to some degree, the overall status of her relationship is a positive one. She is benefiting from the relationship in a number of different ways. Then, uh, it's better for her to hang in there and uh, leave the rest to Allah. He will have to answer for it. You know, if she has children, etc., you know, then she has to assess the, the relationship and make a judgment, you know, for herself ultimately. Because we, we know that, you know, for example, uh, Sauda, she gave up her right to attention, you could say, or, you know, to, to a day to stay married to the Prophet you know, she chose between, she had a choice between going into a state of divorce, you know, splitting off from the Prophet or giving up her day. She gave up her day because she felt that being married to the Prophet was better than being married to anybody else. You know, even though she may have wanted that, that, that extra time and uh, she would not receive it. So, I would say that, you know, this is what the sister, such a sister in that situation would have to decide for herself. Uh, is there any specific advice for general advice? Raise your voice, please. My question is, is there any uh, general advice or uh, specific advice to uh, those people who had a mixed marriage? that they just came into the, uh, an environment like the Saudi Arabian environment where women are not allowed to drive or women are not to be, you know, the, the environment of the kingdom related to women activities is quite different, let's say, than from a woman or who was uh, in a state or somewhere else where they drive or they do their own stuff or what they call a wedding court. Maybe they have more freedom, okay? Is there any advice to do with uh, women who uh, coming into Islamic society like this and they are seeing mixed of the true Islamic and non-true Islamic mixed within the society to them and uh, within the society I see like the mixed uh, 
they see maybe some practice in Muslim and see the non the other side is non practice in Muslim. And I would give him I would say a confusing picture about what is Islam is all about because there are also a new them. And I've seen that the reason my question too is that seeing that confusion on the parts of I would say majority of the mixed marriage uh, in, in the way they you know, you know, in the way they look at the, the society in here, in the way they look at Islam in here, they are in a little bit of a confusion state, I would say. They are in a confusion state. And can you, uh, maybe from your own experience, or from someone's experience, give us, or from the uh, point of Islamic uh, give us advice in, in that aspect? Well, I would say that, you know, the issue of education is a critical issue. That we talked about the duties of the Muslim husband in terms of educating his wife. The more she is educated, the more she is able to handle the variety of circumstances that may present themselves before her in life. The less she is educated, the more difficult, the more chances of confusion, etc. So I would say that one, it's very important for the husband to, to see that the, the wife gets educated Islamically, to be well-rounded Islamically. Part of that involves her being around other Muslim women who are uh, stronger, who can help to strengthen her. You know, the, the social aspect of life in the West uh, is, is, becomes quite limited for a woman who comes here. So it's very important for the brothers to, to, to see that the women uh, do get in contact with each other you know and with stronger women under Islamic circumstances not just getting together just for a purely social you know dinner party or whatever but to in gatherings where there is some Islamic benefit coming out that they be around women who are stronger not other ones who are weaker than them that they're, they're going to pull them down for example right you know but there should be some of the stronger sisters they should be invited and encouraged to be around these other sisters to help to develop their consciousness of Islam, uh, different, um, you know, there are, uh, for example, females who have graduated from Islamic studies courses and things like this here, in this area, from, you know, different uh, universities or whatever, that uh, these women should be uh, asked to set up courses and classes for these women to study, you know. And uh, in this way, providing of books and tapes and with these type of circles, it helps to occupy that woman, you know, with Islamic activities which would help her to grow spiritually and be able to better deal with, you know, this different environment that she's found herself in. You know, and as well as to, you know, to realize herself as a Muslim woman. I mean, this is really ultimately what she, you know, should be striving for. So this would be my advice to... Uh, to such brothers, I mean, they have to, I mean, the way, for example, a, a person here married to a person from here, I mean, he doesn't, he's not required as much to try to find activities for his wife because there's so many places, she's got so many family members, etc., that she, she can be involved with. But even in this case, it is still the duty of the husband to make sure that she is being involving herself with other Muslim women who are of good quality, who are going to help her. 
because it's very easy for her to get caught up in that circle you know where it's just talking about dresses and, and parties and you know all these different kinds of things and so even a local woman though she may have a lot of social contact it's negative social contact and that's going to reflect back on the family so it's the duty all around but it becomes even more so in the case of a person married to somebody who is non-Arabic speaking because that same woman for example you can provide her with so much material that is available in Arabic you could even get her into courses that are, that are you know where they're teaching in university or lectures she can attend she can go to the masjid and she can hear Juma and you know this is why she should be in these times especially women you know should go to Juma especially to benefit from the khutbah of Juma you know because it's uh, I mean the ignorance that is sort of come over the Muslim woman in general in the Muslim world is something that uh, it's no good for the men to to have this renaissance of Islam and you know become aware and everything and the women are left behind I mean the women have to be moving up along with the men so in the case for an Arabic speaking woman it's so, it's so much easier for her to to get involved in circles so it means that the brothers who are married to English speaking women then they have to make greater efforts than those that are married to Arabic-speaking women to ensure that the women, you know, uh, do establish a, an Islamic social circle which can help them, you know, to, to develop Islamically. Well, uh, our brother was advising. Once every six months, you know, the other one, the husband has to help the cheaper ones to leave for travel. And what time of spending does the woman come up into that matter? What hours do you discuss? Well, you know, uh, what our brother is suggesting is, you know, advise the sister to develop the circle. Of course, the advice has to be to the brothers first and foremost because it's the husband's duty to encourage this to provide the means because some of this will require you know providing transportation and all these different types of things because sisters can sit down and make all kinds of decisions but in the end they may not be able to implement them due to different uh, responsibilities in the family circumstance and the husbands don't agree or whatever so it is really the duty first and foremost of the husband to encourage such a circle you know and uh, then uh, some kind of curriculum can be worked out because a lot can be done even with the women getting together without even somebody uh, say say you know a Muslim female scholar to be amongst them you know because maybe you have some difficulty finding one who speaks English or whatever you know uh, what we have in Riyadh is that we found some sisters who didn't speak English but there were other sisters who were Arabic speaking sisters who knew English who would translate for such sisters in those kind of circles and so it was beneficial to the sisters anyway so that can be that's a method that can be employed but also a lot can be done with the sisters on their own in the sense that if they you know choose I mean a series of good Islamic books which they will study together you know each sister being responsible in each sitting to give a presentation of what they have read you know and um and that way, uh, they're all studying the materials, and uh, you know, useful materials. And each one is sort of taking part and given responsibility to to, to make presentations. Uh, in, in this way, I mean, a lot can be covered, you know. But the important thing is to just to choose a a good list, 
you know, of books from which to, to work um, uh, without really, you know, trying to promote uh, my own materials. Uh, but uh, as the brothers just pointed out to me, there's a book which I did called Islamic Studies Book One. It's part of a series of Islamic Studies, which was uh, prepared for junior high school and high school. And it it, uh, it provides it's the basis. A there's a curriculum there of study. You know, in the four basic areas of Islamic studies, which I taught, which was fiqh, hadith, tafsir, and tawhid. But there is also the area of sirah, you know, which is not uh, dealt with in the book, which should also be included. You know, biographies of the Sahaba. There's a book called um, Companions of the Prophet. It's in three parts where they've gathered different biographies of different companions of the Prophet Muhammad which should be read. You know, there are books in, the, in English about the wives of the Prophet Muhammad which should, could also be read. You know, so uh, what happens is that um, you know, our curriculum can be worked out, and the women should gather. You know, once a week, once every two weeks. You know, it shouldn't be. You know, as our brother suggested, once every six months. Of course, you know, such gatherings is better than nothing. But you know, you're not going to get too far too fast in that uh, fashion. Uh, question here: It seems that women here are discouraged from going to the masjid for prayer and Juma. What can the men do to assist the women in going to Juma and getting an English khutbah translation? Well, uh, that's you know really up to the men here. You know what can be arranged. I know in uh, in Riyadh, you know we have a regular translation of uh, the khutbah and Juma. I do it in one of the mosques in Riyadh, and um, this has been going on for some four years. We try to make arrangements for women to attend. Unfortunately, the transportation problems, you know, for Muslim convert women and so on, so we couldn't, um, weren't able to to coordinate it properly, so the, there was a microphone hookup for them, but uh, what has happened is that some brothers who decided to bring their wives, in our case, they just, wives just sat in the back part of the masjid and listened. So uh, it depends on the masjid, and um, uh, it would be, if it's possible, uh, men should try to find, you know, some sister who knows Arabic and English and uh, choose one of the masjids, which is, you know, in a central location, which, you know, the women could, could go to. And then that sister after Juma could translate the khutbah for the other sisters. Yeah. Or if there is a masjid where it is being translated into English for brothers in general, then a microphone hookup, just like we have here, could be... Uh, done to carry the information across to the sisters also. What is the uh, hadith related to the benefit of a woman praying? Well, the, the hadith... How does it fit this particular situation? Well, the hadith, the general hadith, which says, you know, that um, do not prevent the, the female slaves of Allah from going to the houses of Allah. But the prayer in their homes, you know, is better. Uh, this is a general recommendation, but uh, what it means is that uh, women who have a desire to go to the masjid should not be prevented from going to the masjid. And it was the practice of the wives of the Prophet to attend for Fajr and Isha. They used to go regularly, you know. Many of the women used to go at that time. Uh, and uh, in these times, it becomes, uh, to me, it becomes very critical in the area of Juma, you know, because the fact of education, women being neglected, you know, Islamically. You know, that uh, now that the, the khutbahs of Juma and many of the masjids around here, you know, have reached a very good quality, it's really quite beneficial. 
that uh, the women should be able to take the benefit that the men are also taking from these khutbas. Yeah, if a, if a woman, you know, family situation is is um, is so busy that you know she really doesn't have the time. Well, then of course, I mean, she's excused. She uses the tapes and the books or whatever. But otherwise, if she is able, it is better. You know, to go and to, if she's Arabic speaking, of course, to hear the khutbah directly. Or even, you know, getting out and being amongst, you see, because the value, part of the value is the social contact of being amongst other, you know, religious women. This is the benefit of, of going there, not just listening to the khutbah, but also being in contact with these others. There will be things that may be shared, benefits they may get from other sisters, they may find out about, you know, certain gatherings that they wouldn't normally find if they just stayed in their homes or whatever. So this is where the you know the benefit, the social aspect, Islamically social aspect, is uh, quite important. Okay, as, uh, our time is uh, running out. We're heading into Maghrib now, so um, we'll stop here. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdika, ashhadu alaihi We ask Allah to help us as males to fulfill our duties to our wives and to help our sisters to be uh, patient and to to help them to help their husbands to fulfill their duties and uh, that Allah we ask Allah also to make you know, our relationships our marital relationships ones which would help us to to serve Allah as we should in this life and to benefit from what Allah has promised us in the next life Amen <laughs>